If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. London today is a bustling metropolis, an exciting place to visit, and a somewhat safe place to call home. An eclectic mix of people from all over the world live in London, and the crime rate is dropping year on year. In some parts of this vibrant capital, the crime rate is lower than that of much smaller cities in other parts of the UK. However, things haven't always been so safe. Stories and tales of old have echoed around these streets and grown to become that of legend, particularly those of gruesome nature. Today we'll be exploring one of those stories and discovering about London's often bloody past. My name is Nikki Druce, and this is Macabre London. Many of us would love to have mystical powers. Throughout pop culture, characters who are able to cast spells, shapeshift or make life-changing potions are the ones we aspire to be. Perhaps it's the appeal of being able to control others with just a potion rather than having to assert physical dominance. Or maybe it's the simple fact of being able to shift the normal constructs of physics, science and time with a swish of a wand. Whatever your belief in the occult, you cannot deny that it has an irresistible draw to filmmakers, writers and creative industries as an ingenious way to capture humans' desire to be something more than they are. Nowadays we are all too aware that spellcasting and potion drinking is something to be taken with a generous pinch of salt as to its actual likelihood of causing any effect to the human form. But before there was science, there was alchemy, an early form of chemistry which believed in mysticism coupled with science. Alchemists believed that by discovering the Philosopher's Stone, a substance believed to mystically heighten and increase knowledge of alchemy, that they could become powerful beyond belief. As alchemy started to drift across the ocean from the Middle East, it eventually landed in Europe, and before long it was widely accepted as an everyday profession, but something changed. During the Middle Ages, people started to turn on anyone who was considered to be practising magic. They believed that mystical powers were increasingly being used for evil rather than good, that those who had learned the craft were using it as a way to manipulate others and to get what they wanted. 
As soon as people caught wind that they may be in danger from these suspected heathens, they devised a plan to cease their magic. The hype began to grow. Soon anything and everything that was deemed to be bad was blamed on those practising magic. Milk spoiling, crops failing and storms were all deemed as proof of witches living in your vicinity. The church wouldn't stand for anything other than organised religion and in order to stop malevolent characters, trials began to bring them to task and hold them accountable for their supposed actions. These trials would see thousands of people, but mainly women, executed for crimes over the hundreds of years that followed. These trials would see thousands of people, but mainly women, executed for crimes over the hundreds of years that followed, that were virtually impossible to prove. London soon began trials of its own, and those who were deemed to be witches soon had to hide before the witch hunter came knocking. One afternoon in April 1862, inside 31 Church Street in Westminster, a lady by the name of Mary King was finishing washing and dressing herself in her bedroom whilst chatting to her husband. Just as she was finishing up, the door to the bedroom was flung open and in the doorway stood her grandson, Charles. Mary was rushed at by Charles, shoved onto the floor and held as she felt two blades slash across her face. She crawled under a table to try and protect herself as she was certain she was about to be murdered. She was then struck forcefully multiple times across the face and head with a wooden stick until she said her head was beaten in. Mary was a 75-year-old woman, wife and grandmother, who had been caring for her grandson, Charles Tilbrook, since his dismissal from the army the previous year. Charles had moved in with his grandparents in Westminster to acclimatise to life away from the armed forces, but his dislike of Mary soon started to build. Mary was under the impression that her and her grandson had no bad blood between them, but unbeknownst to his grandmother, Charles had slowly been plotting against her. A week before the slashing incident, Mary had exclaimed her excitement to him about the upcoming May Day celebrations, saying that she thought the event would be a gay one that year. Charles retorted to her that she wouldn't live to see it. As his resentment started to boil over, Charles felt he had no other option but to attack his grandmother. Charles was arrested and imprisoned immediately after the attack and awaited trial before a judge. The trial was to take place in Bow Street Magistrates Court in Covent Garden on the 2nd of June 1862, after Mary was finally better after having spent seven weeks in hospital. Mary took to the stand and regaled her vicious attack to the court. She told the judge about how her attacker had made two slashes across her face with a blade, but how she feared he was aiming for her throat. The judge instantly recognised the attack as scoring above the breath, a common practice used against defenceless old women. To score above the breath was an act performed on those suspected of practising sorcery. A sharp object was used to scratch the accused's forehead, usually in the shape of a cross to stop spells being cast from their breath. The attacker would grab the victim from behind and reach round to the forehead, making the cut swiftly to avoid being cursed by their breath. This was believed to be a definite cure for witchcraft, but by the 1800s it was heavily frowned upon. In Scottish novelist Sir Walter Scott's book, Letters on Demonology and Witchcraft, published in 1830, 
He wrote that only the vulgar are still addicted to the custom of scoring above the breath. Two policemen, a doctor and a surgeon all gave evidence that was stacking up against Charles, with reports of him having caused life-threatening injuries to Mary and stating some rather incriminating statements at the time of arrest. When questioned before the judge, Charles was quoted from the time of his arrest. He stated, Now I do not want it thought that I wanted to kill the old lady outright. I only wanted to spill her blood, which I have done. It is not what I shall have to suffer in this world, but the next. When asked what his motivation behind the attack was, he said, She has dealings with and is connected with the devil. I am certain of it. She should not have that power over me, which she has done with her arts. Two hundred years ago, I know such a woman would have been put to death without any ceremony about it. People consider themselves much enlightened these days, that they do not believe in such a crime, but I do believe in it. Charles was inevitably found guilty and sentenced to a lifetime of hard labour. Mary was fortunate that by the 1800s witchcraft had been discounted as a forgotten practice. With the recent advancements in science and medicine, witchcraft was soon becoming a thing of the past, and people didn't believe that there was any proof that showed it to be effective. If Mary's case was taken to court a hundred years earlier, the outcome would have been very different for her, and for Charles. In the 1600s, witchcraft was looked upon as something that was practiced two ways. There were good witches and bad ones, the former often serving their community with their affirmations, spells and potions, helping to keep the residents safe from evil spirits and bad witches. Good witches would often offer counterspells to a bad witch's magic, thus protecting everyone in the vicinity from curses. However, good witches were always under the threat of their community turning on them and accusing them of bad witchcraft, particularly if they performed a spell that deemed them to be dangerous. Wapping in central London is a wharf area of the city on the edge of the River Thames. It's been home to docks, quayside warehouses and the Metropolitan Police Marine Unit over the years, but in the 1600s it was a packed area of the city with many people calling it home. One of the residents of Spruce Island in Wapping in the 1600s was Joan Peterson, a woman who was known in the area for being a good witch and the local psychic. She helped the residents of Wapping by carrying out healing spells, making potions for the infirmed and curing sick livestock. Joan was respected and held in high esteem in her community by those that lived there until one of her spells went wrong. Christopher Wilson, a fellow resident of Wapping, came to Joan one day suffering from an unspecified illness, but complaining of symptoms as specific as feeling weak and sick. Joan attempted to heal Christopher, and after carrying out some basic sorcery, sent him on his way. Christopher refused to pay Joan at the time of his treatment, instead opting to see if it had any effect. After a few days, Christopher was seen up and about in Wapping, but had not yet paid Joan for his remarkable cure. Joan set about recovering the money she was owed and approached Christopher in the street. As Joan approached, Christopher tried to flee the scene. Joan shouted after him, You are better. You better give me my money, or you shall be ten times worse than ever you were. The residents of Wapping shrugged off the incident until a week or so later they saw Christopher patrolling the streets, his stare vacant and his feet shuffling as if he had become the undead. 
He suffered frequent fits, would sit and stare for hours on end, and when eventually he collapsed in the street, his body was seen to bloat and rot instantly, leading the onlookers to believe that he had died quite a while before. Not long after the incident with Christopher, a baby in the community started suffering from fits and convulsions, which understandably worried the parents. One evening, the baby was being watched over in its crib when the two ladies tending to it reported a large black cat that sauntered into the room and approached the crib. Brushing against the crib and making itself at home, the cat sat down, rocking the cradle from side to side. The two women shooed the cat away with a poker from the fire, and as they did, it disappeared right before their eyes. Around about an hour later, the women noticed the cat walking into the room again. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24 time with more purpose and aiming directly for the baby. One of the women kicked at the cat to stop it getting any closer to the crib, and again it vanished into thin air before their very eyes. Moments later, the woman who had kicked the cat looked at her leg. It had begun to swell and became immensely painful. After leaving the house, the two women bumped into the baker who worked across the street, and he told them how he'd been frightened by a large black cat, the likes of which he'd never seen before. He assured them that it must have been Joan bewitching their child. Along with her shape-shifting, Joan was also known to have two familiars who she would commune with on a regular basis. One was known to be a black dog who would often be seen nearby her house. Another was a less likely squirrel whom she would spend long hours into the night liaising with and consulting over her spells and potions. A former maid of Joan said that she would often become entranced by the pair's conversations, but when asked, she couldn't recall any of what was said, as she believed the conversations to be bewitched. When Joan's son, who was no more than eight, was asked about his mother convening with animals, he said that she would often speak to a squirrel of an evening time. What was to become Joan's eventual downfall actually had very little to do with her. 
In January 1652, an 80-year-old woman by the name of Lady Powell was causing waves amongst the residents of Wapping due to her relationship with a Mr Thomas Crompton. Lady Powell was a very well-to-do lady with a vast fortune, which she was set to leave behind when she eventually passed away. Powell was unfortunately suffering from a long-term illness, and although well enough to continue relatively as normal, it was obvious that her days were naturally numbered. Crompton had learned of Powell's riches and set about a devious plan of wooing the old lady in order to obtain the wealth after she died. Powell, who was already married, was knocked off her feet by Crompton, falling for him instantly, and he soon made sure to separate Powell from her husband, if not mentally, but physically too. Crompton whisked Lady Powell away to a residence in Chelsea, hoping that if she was removed from Wapping, she would ultimately be forgotten about by her family as well. Lady Powell's niece, Anne Levingston, had been caring for Lady Powell in her old age and eventually convinced her to return home to be reunited with her husband, taking her away from Crompton's clutches. Shortly after Lady Powell had returned to the family estate, her condition worsened and it wasn't long before she passed away. As Anne was Lady Powell's main care provider, she'd been kind enough to leave her all of her money, which Crompton wasn't best pleased about. So along with three other friends, he set about a plan to retrieve it. Their first plan was to bribe a lady by the name of Joan Simpson into accusing Anne of using witchcraft to murder her aunt. However, Joan Simpson caught on to their plan and quickly sent the men away, as she didn't want to have any part in the dispute. Joan Peterson was then approached by the gang, and asked if she would help them in their plight. With a small fortune of a hundred coins on offer for her compliance in their plot, Joan was sorely tempted to accept. Instead, she adhered to a moral code, and sensing that she could be brought to task if she was uncovered, she declined. Crompton now feared that as two people had declined his offers of bribery, that it wouldn't be long before he was found out and arrested for his thieving plan. As the threat of being uncovered loomed nearer, Crompton made a distraction by obtaining a search warrant from a local friend, a justice of the peace, who happened to be far more accepting of a bribe than the two ladies. A search of Joan's house was enforced with a focus on finding anything relating to Lady Powell and the potential sorcery that had been practised against her. The justice of the peace asked Crompton and his gang to look for hair, nails or clay, anything that could be used to create spells against Lady Powell and anything that could be used as evidence of witchcraft. A common practice used by witches at this time was to create bottles of metal nails, urine and hair and put them into a clay pot which would then be buried in the ground near the person's home, ultimately bewitching them. Witch bottles were also used to prevent against witches spreading their magic so it's no doubt that Joan probably had a few buried near her own home that she didn't even know about. The search party didn't find any such items inside Joan's home but instead captured and carried Joan to be presented to the Justice of the Peace so he could inspect her under oath. Joan's body was searched for signs of a witch's teat. Any abnormality upon the body, such as a birthmark, which would be used by the devil to imbibe her with magical powers, but nothing was found. Joan was then arrested and told that she could confess without any harm coming her way, and that she could tell them about her dealings with Mrs Levingston, without fear of being prosecuted. Joan refused the opportunity to confess anything, as she knew there was nothing to confess. She was then stripped and forcibly inspected again by four women for the signs of the devil upon her body. 
Joan had to endure yet another physical inspection in the form of physicians, who, after inspecting her from head to toe, said that her body was perfectly normal. But still the Justice for the Peace wasn't satisfied, and sent her to trial regardless of her being completely innocent. On April the 6th, Joan was sent to the Old Bailey to be trialled before the court. Many testimonies were heard accusing Joan of various wrongdoings and whopping, but none of them holding much weight or story behind them. Eventually, Joan had a chance to defend herself. She took to the stand and produced a report she had obtained from Lady Powell's physicians, stating that her cause of death was natural causes, proven by an autopsy. The court stumbled to recover itself after Joan's well-evidenced plea, and decided that the plot to murder Lady Powell by sorcery had no basis, and Joan is found not guilty of the charge. As Joan is starting to breathe a sigh of relief, Margaret Austin takes to the stand. She regales the story of the deceased Christopher Wilson, whom you'll remember supposedly suffered at the fate of Joan's hands after refusing to pay for a treatment. Margaret tells the court how Joan had surely condemned him to death for the curse, and that he was sure to die from Joan's spells. The jury hears a few more retellings of similar stories in the court, and then they're left to decide Joan's fate. One thing to note at Joan's trial was that the Justice of the Peace residing that day had threatened any witnesses or public jury with an instant stint inside Newgate Prison, also known as Hell on Earth. Some did try to enter the court and bear witness, but were simply turned away or jeered at so loudly that they could not be heard over the noise. The steady stream of witnesses telling stories of Joan's exploits continues until it is discovered that one of Crompton's friends was in the yard of the Old Bailey, offering money to those who would speak against Joan, but he is soon chased away and the stream ends. The judge doesn't deliberate on Joan's case, and despite the inconclusive and false evidence, convicts her of witchcraft against Christopher Wilson, but offers her a reprieve should she agree to testify against Mrs Levingston. Joan vehemently refuses and is incensed, screaming at the judge that she couldn't as it was altogether false. As one of Crompton's gang approaches Joan, still talking about the deal, she lashes out and punches him in the face, shouting, You are a rascal! After her justified outburst, the judge condemns Joan to be hanged by the neck until dead at Tyburn on Monday the 12th of April, her only crime being that she did not want to condemn another woman to the same fate. Joan was taken to the gallows on the morning of the 12th and jeered by the crowd and her executioner to still confess to her crimes, but she politely refused. Joan said she had made her peace with God, spoke along with the prayers that were spoken by the crowd, and whilst the noose was being looped around her neck, she sang the 25th Psalm as she dropped to her death.
Coming up next week on Macabre London. The witchcraft and sorcery continues as we will be back with part two of our witches episode. Join us then for more tales of potions, spells and a case of witchcraft in World War II. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Macabre London, then why not let us know on Twitter by tweeting at Macabre London. Every review left helps us to be noticed and for the podcast to be discovered by many others. If you'd like to join us on Facebook, search for Macabre London in the top bar, or you can put Macabre London Podcast into Google and we should appear. You'll soon be able to donate to the show via Patreon in order for us to carry out more in-depth investigations in return for incentives such as exclusive mini-podcasts, shout-outs on the show and one-off goodies, but more details to come about that in the next episode. If you'd like to let us know about a story you'd like to hear on Macabre London, then you can tweet us or email macabrelondon at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Macabre London is hosted on Acast and written, performed and produced by me, Nikki Drews, with additional script editing by Neil Murray. Music for each episode can be found in the show's description box on iTunes, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.